Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. In 1945, Britain was broke and exhausted, but the country had big hopes for the future, for a free national health service for everyone, for new housing and better schools. What were the hopes and ideals we had then, and what became of them? I'm Ros Taylor, and this is the story of how we were promised jam tomorrow. There's no such thing as council housing that's too good. You know, it should be housing for a lifetime. This has been described as one of the greatest acts of privatisation this country has ever seen. There is a sense of security that comes with having that secure, long-term, safe environment that then allows you to invest in everything around it. Right to buy was really something that benefited that particular tenant, but took money out of the system in such a way that the generations that followed have had less and less chance of getting a council house. Banks quite like lending to landlords because they feel like a safer bet than a first-time buyer. The wonder of the prefab was first of all the indoor bathroom and toilet and a kitchen with absolutely every mod con. There was a refrigerator, there was an electric stove, there was a fold-down table, which I and all the kids that I knew thought was magical, a larder, hot and cold running water. We thought it was perfection. And to crown it all, of course, there was central heating run from the back of a coal fire, which meant that even in the winter, the deepest winter, the house was snug. That was Neil Kinnock, who grew up in South Wales and experienced firsthand what it was like to move from an insect and rodent-infested home to one of the 156,000 new prefabs that were built just after the Second World War. The pressure was on to build new homes, but as we'll see, the government couldn't keep up with demand. By the 1960s, it turned to high-rise, cheaper flats to try to meet it. In this episode, I'll find out how renting became something you only did if you really had to, and owning a home became the winning ticket in the game of life. How millions of us have taken on hundreds of thousands of pounds of debt because it was the only alternative to paying our landlord's mortgage, and now are struggling to pay it back. Why, when you're a homeowner, you'll sometimes do as much as you can to stop other people from joining you, and how we can change that.
1945, bombing had destroyed half a million houses in Britain. Many others were damaged, and plenty of the rest didn't have a bath or even an inside toilet. When the mass observation survey asked people what they wanted in their homes, they said better kitchens. But most of all, they wanted a bathroom. The question of a bath has become one of the major social dividing lines. Since the last war, the need for a bath, even the more modest types of home, has been recognised, and few homes have been built without a bath in the last 20 years. But what people want is a bathroom containing a bath and a sink with hot and cold water laid on to both. At present, in the majority of working-class homes, the only sink found in the house is situated in the scullery, so that the family has to wash and shave there. This is strongly disliked. Neil Kinnock told me about the house he lived in during the war. I lived in a terraced house in Dale Terrace in Tredegar. It was pretty run down. And my clear memory from the age of about five, I guess, was of what we called black pats, which were hard-shell beetles that infested every house in our area, largely because, of course, we looked across the narrow Serhawi River to Titus Colliery. Black pats infested surrounded areas as a result of the colliery work. Uh, there were a lot of mice and rats as well. My father was fastidious, to say the very least, in trying to combat uh, both the vermin and the uh, the black pats by putting powder down every day. But you could always a few hours later, hear them scuttling under the wallpaper alongside the fireplace. The interesting thing about that was the colliery, as I say, was about 200 yards from our house on the other side of the river. Our house fronted onto the main road down to Newport. At the side of the main road was a railway line that carried the coal supplies from the collieries in Tredega down to Newport, and on the other side of the railway line was the gasometer of the Tudiga Gas Company that was nationalised and became British uh, Gas, or the South Wales Gas Board. I tell the story, which is rather apocryphal, that my mother, when she called me in to have food, would say, Neil, come in, come in, your food's on the table and it's getting dirty. If you're wondering what black pats are, it's the South Wales dialect for a kind of cockroach. Between 1945 and 1951, there was a huge effort to sort of establish housing, to establish council housing as a really, really fundamental plan of public health. Lindsay Hanley is the author of Estates, an intimate history. Nye Bevan, the health minister who established the NHS, was also at the same time as being health secretary, was also housing secretary. So they were regarded as of a piece, which was really, really important. You know, he, he believed that Basically, council housing built well enough could erode class differences really significantly. And that by establishing, you know, basically a national housing service in tandem with the National Health Service, you would create a similar situation where everybody used council housing in the way that everybody uses the NHS. Bevan regarded that there's no such thing as council housing that's too good. It should be housing for a lifetime. It should last. It should be large enough to accommodate a family and elderly relatives if need be. It should have gardens. It should be really solid. It should last forever, basically. A national housing service 
This was radical thinking. But while the NHS already had the doctors and the hospitals, they just had to be bribed and cajoled to work for a free service, Bevan was trying to build new homes from a standing start. And the prefabs aside, which were never meant to last more than a decade or so, he wasn't prepared to compromise his vision. New towns like Stevenage and Corby sprang up, as this public information film from 1948 explained. Now, how shall we plan? Most important of all is the child. So we'll need pedestrian routes for the pram pusher. Nursery schools within 400 yards of every home. Primary schools within safe and easy reach. Each neighbourhood must have its own... Nurches. Community centre. Shopping districts. And lots of pubs. Right next door to me. Oh, there'll be a pub quite near enough to you. And finally, we started on the houses. The site was planned for maximum sunshine, and then everyone could take his choice. But building these new towns was far from easy, as Lindsay Hanley pointed out. The emphasis on quality, plus there was a post-war shortage of materials, there was a shortage of, of labour in the construction trades, meant that A, they couldn't build fast enough, and it was incredibly politically sensitive, this idea that you would, in a time of extreme housing need, you know, in, in places like, you know, Coventry and Liverpool and Birmingham and London, you know, that just had so much housing stock destroyed, you know, it was really politically sensitive, essentially really that you prioritise quality, so far above quantity. I mean, the prefabs, there, there were about 150,000 prefabs built, you know, which people actually loved and, you know, wanted to stay up, even though they're only intended to be temporary. But essentially, Labour lost the 1951 election on the topic of housing. The Conservatives were back in power, and Harold Macmillan, who was housing minister, promised to build 300,000 homes a year. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's the same number Boris Johnson promised in his 2019 manifesto. And it's the same number Michael Gove is targeting now. But Macmillan actually met his target by 1953. Even he didn't think he could do it. But by massively ramping up brick, cement and timber production and letting councils borrow at cheap rates and build wherever they wanted, Macmillan managed it. Built in 12 weeks for less than £1,000 each, these houses seem one answer to the housing drive. With the living room, dining annex and kitchen downstairs, they have three bedrooms upstairs. It was by abolishing standards around space. It was by prioritising the building of flats over houses, you know, when people tended to want houses. And also by starting to subsidise local authorities for building flats above, you know, two or three floors. I think it was above the fourth floor local authorities would start to get a subsidy for. And so that, that sort of started to create an incentive not only to build flats, but to build higher and higher. And the higher flats tended to go, generally speaking, the less people wanted to live in them. The popularity of the prefab had been partly down to the fact it had a small garden, where people could dry washing, grow flowers and veg, perhaps keep a few chickens and let kids out to play. High-rise housing made these things difficult or impossible, as mass observation had found during the war. Possession of a garden is a very important focal point in the whole housing setup. The average Englishman and Englishwoman dreams of his or her own home and garden. So a patch of land around you is important to lots of people. 
But Jules Birch, who's a housing journalist, says it's not just the idea of a garden that makes houses so much more desirable than flats in Britain. The biggest reason is leasehold, which obviously is most flat, the overwhelming majority of flats would have been leasehold. England and Wales are the only countries in Europe where leasehold still exists. And leasehold is a funny kind of ownership, which isn't really ownership, where you have fewer rights. And so owning a flat has not been as attractive. That said, particularly in council housing, and particularly when they were trying to ramp the numbers up in the 50s and 60s, there were far more flats built. And the subsidies were all to encourage local authorities to build more flats. And then more recently, um, the private sector has built loads of flats in inner cities, but leaseholders reared its head again in the building safety crisis when really the disadvantages of leasehold and the manner of their construction and, uh, are all problems that have come home to roost. Do you think the government will ever get rid of leaseholds? There have been moves to change it, but nothing ever seems to happen. Well, they legislated to create common holds about 15 years ago, but very, very few common hold homes have ever been built because developers don't want to build them. But as the housing shortages persisted into the 60s, there was a pressure to build up as well as out. And as councils flung up skyscrapers, encouraged by incentives to build higher, problems began to emerge. Parents couldn't keep an eye on kids while they were playing outside, as they used to do in the garden or street. Bad neighbours became a torment, not just a nuisance. What had worked earlier in the 20th century on a smaller scale, with a concierge to keep things clean and stop antisocial behaviour, didn't work in bigger buildings. Council housing was no longer something to aspire to because it was better and more secure than private renting. It was now a place of last resort. Council housing specifically was kind of irredeemably tainted by what happened to a lot of council housing from the 60s and 70s onwards, which is a lot of less popular council housing, which tends to to be the, the more peripheral council housing, sometimes not always high up in flats that became very unpopular. You know, most notably the Paulson scandal, the scandal involving T. Dunn Smith, the leader of Newcastle City Council, who basically wanted to rebuild Newcastle entirely. There was a lot of housing that sort of became tainted with this idea that, you know, council housing is bad because of councils. There's an element of truth to that, but it's certainly not the whole truth. You know, I mean, the GLC in London in the 80s, you know, famously a very left-wing council, but was also quite suspicious of very large-scale council housing because they thought it reduced responsiveness, you know, and sort of communication between tenants and people at the council who were sort of administering and looking after the housing. I'd never heard of John Paulson, but it turns out he was responsible for lots of 60s buildings, many of which have since been demolished. You've probably seen many of them, but you wouldn't be able to remember what they looked like. Cannon Street Station in London, the offices over Leeds City Station, council housing in Pontefract and County Durham. By the end of the 60s, Paulson had one of the biggest architectural practices in Britain but it was built on bribery and corruption. He was paying out hundreds of thousands of pounds to councillors, MPs and civil servants to approve his schemes. By 1974, he was in jail. 
The idea that councils were corrupt, ineffective, or just not fit to run housing fitted perfectly into the thinking behind Margaret Thatcher's right-to-buy scheme. She set out her plans in the same year Paulson was jailed, when she was Shadow Environment Secretary. Then, of course, there are all those people who've got a house, and yet they haven't. It's theirs, and yet it's not theirs, because it's a council house, and they want to buy it, but they can't. People want a home they can call their own. The last Conservative government encouraged councils to sell, but all too often Labour councils refused. This brought disappointment to many, many people. But this time we're going to make it a matter of the law of the land. If you've been a council tenant for at least three years, you'll have the right by law to buy your house, and that's that. Ironically, right to buy was originally a Labour policy. It was in the manifesto for the 1959 election, which the party lost. But it was the Conservatives who implemented it, and the Treasury, not the councils that owned the housing stock, that benefited. People could buy their homes at a discount on the market rate. Most of the receipts from the right to buy went to the Treasury and were not reinvested in new council houses. So it's been estimated the Treasury has made something like £47 billion from the right to buy. If that had been reinvested in in a new generation of council houses or affordable houses, we might not be having the same conversation. Right to buy was, as it was conceived, was was really something that benefited that particular tenant, but took money out of the system in such a way that the generations that followed have had less and less chance of getting a council house. Some money did go to local authorities, but they were under such strict controls on their borrowing and spending that effectively the building of new council housing stopped. And I think it was really conceived as a as a way of uh, reducing the deficit, funding tech cuts elsewhere. And capital investment in housing was scaled back massively. The council housing that did remain was the stuff that people didn't want to buy, occupied by people who couldn't afford to buy it. So council housing became even more unattractive. From the 80s onwards, there was a bit of a big backlash against, you know, the idea of councils basically having the power and having the competence to run council housing. So housing associations, which has sort of grown up on a very, very small scale to kind of meet, you know, very small levels of need in lots of different localised pockets, particularly in the 70s, were then kind of offered the chance to take over chunks of council housing and these chunks of council housing got bigger and bigger and bigger particularly once new labor got into power in the late 90s from 97 one of labor's kind of policies on council housing was to offer you know offer is a bit of a sort of loaded term really offer 10 council tenants votes you know essentially referenda on whether to transfer their housing stock over to housing associations and were told that if they voted to go with the housing association central government would then give that housing association tons and tons of money to refurbish their housing and redevelop and regenerate their estates and by the late 90s after decades of neglect, deindustrialization, mass poverty for 20 years, so much council housing was in an absolutely terrible state. And so, of course, people felt they didn't really have a choice but to vote for going with housing associations. And housing associations went from being these very small organisations, which probably were a lot more responsive than kind of very institutionalised council staff who'd lost a lot of motivation and morale, 
Housing associations went from being small organisations that dealt with a few hundred houses and flats to suddenly having 50,000 houses and flats on their books. And although they did do, housing associations did do a lot of very large scale refurbishment and regeneration on a lot of really dilapidated council or by now ex-council housing. Eventually, because of size and scale and also a kind of constant so the prioritising of sort of the bottom line really ended up with a very similar reputation for being unresponsive, for being unremote, for having an enormous backlogs of repairs. Meanwhile, many of the council houses and flats that had been sold off were being rented out again after they were snapped up by buy-to-let landlords. A lot of those homes have since been sold on and bought by landlords who now rent out former social homes on the private market at an inflated rate, some of which are being rented back to people on housing benefit who would have once lived in social housing. I mean, this has been described as one of the greatest acts of privatisation this country has ever seen. I think I would agree with that. Vicky Spratt is housing correspondent at the iPaper and the author of Tenants. But right to buy isn't the only factor here. In the 90s, well, in the 80s and 90s, two things happened. Firstly, mortgage lending was expanded. It, it, you know, it became easier to get financed to buy a home. We had the big bang, deregulation of the city, and and mortgage lending became, you know, an increasingly important driver of our economy. And then the buy to let landlord mortgage was introduced, and it became more widespread. And banks quite liked lending to landlords because they feel like a safer bet than a first time buyer, for instance, because Generally speaking, they've got more money and they're doing it to make a profit. So that feels like a safer bet for banks than someone who maybe doesn't have a huge deposit and is is buying a home that they're going to live in, not as a business opportunity. So with rents so high, how do the poorest people in this country afford their rent? The answer is that they depend on benefits to pay it. Two thirds of people on universal credit have a housing element in their entitlement. The government spends around £23 billion on that entitlement every year. That's around a quarter of the entire education budget. In other words, taxpayers are paying the mortgages of hundreds of thousands of private landlords who can jack up rents at will. You'd think, with so many people wanting to buy a home, that house builders would be keen to build as much as possible. But building homes in Britain is not easy, partly because local people and councils have such a powerful say in planning applications. You do have a lot of local objections to new houses, which these days are quite often expressed through objections to traffic rather than new houses as such. But they're still objections, which obviously have huge weight in local politics. The planning system as well is slow and cumbersome in getting new homes approved. But I think the planning system we've got is only really an expression of who holds political power which is, in our system, is existing homeowners in the foregrounds who obviously don't want homes built next to them, and in the background, landowners who stand to gain millions from the way the planning system operates. The mere fact of getting planning permission can increase the price of a plot of land by 100 times compared to if it hasn't got planning permission for houses. At the moment, all that profit goes to the landowner. It could be different. The value uplift which comes with planning permission for housing has at some stages in our history been shared through the community rather than all going to the landowner. That's the basis on which the original new towns were built. 
And if it was shared more fairly, that would make the houses built on that land much more affordable. But the government has sort of toyed with the idea of land reform, but rapidly backed away from it, just like it has with more radical ideas about planning reform. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. We heard earlier about the kind of houses Britons wanted to live in at the end of the war, as opposed to what they actually got. I wanted to find out more about a type of housing that people rave about, but which is still very rare. It's called co-housing. Jan Chadwick lives in a co-housing neighbourhood in Cambridge called Marmalade Lane. Her house is freehold, but the spaces she shares are jointly run and managed by the residents. Well, it's an intentional neighbourly community. So basically, we are all neighbours. We're all directors of our company, Cambridge Co-Housing Limited. We all meet together. We eat together. We socialise. We make decisions together. We run the company together. So it's a really active and social environment to be in. Lots of fun. Lots of work to do, lots of challenges, and requiring really engagement and a, and a good dollop of patience. Lots of areas are communal. We've got a, a, a huge garden, uh, which we need to look after. It takes a lot of work. An allotment. We have children's play area. We have a children's playroom inside. We have three bookable bedrooms for members to book in their guests. We have a, a very large common house where we eat and things happen, like yoga or Kayleys. We have a community kitchen where we cater for communal activities that we have. We have a shared laundry. We have two amenity rooms, one that's a an adult room. It's like a lounge. You can go and chill out, have meetings. And we have a multifunction room, which we've used in the past for Pilates, film nights, entertainment for children. I sometimes do my tap dancing up there. There's no interview panel, but you have to be clear what you're getting into. Basically, it's all, you know, open to anyone to come in. But we always share what it's all about beforehand. We always invite them to a community event. We always give them a tour. So people know before they buy a property exactly what it's all about. And that's really important because we are very much a self-selecting group. It's like Marmite. You either love it or you hate it, you know? <laughs> and and we all pretty much like it here. <laughs> and you've got a big waiting list, haven't you? I have to say, it's it's an interest list, not a waiting list. It's a very long list of people who want to buy at Marmalade Lane. It's not for everyone. Marmalade Lane isn't cheap, though a handful of similar schemes exist for social tenants. But for people who have the time, could co-housing be a way to ease their fears about more people moving in around them? Could it give them the sense of control over the space around them and the privacy that Britons have always said they want, but to feel the benefits of having neighbours who can help you out in a tight spot? 
In England, renters have always played second fiddle to homeowners. But Vicky Spratt is still optimistic that a future government will give them the rights and dignity that homeowners enjoy. I'm always hopeful that things can change because we know that they can. At one point in history, we didn't have a welfare state. And then we did have one. And it was something that would have been unthinkable just 50 years before. You know, but the beverage report came out in 1942 and and changed everything. But it's worth remembering just how much people value a place of their own. So much so that they'll pay as much as they possibly can for the ability to close their own front door behind them. We heard from Neil Kinnock at the beginning of this episode, talking about the prefab he moved into in the 1940s. Nearly 80 years later, Hashi Mohammed, who's a barrister specialising in planning and the author of A Home of One's Own, was able to buy his own place in Wembley, North London. He spent his childhood moving from one overcrowded rented place to another. For me, moving into your own home and having that settlement and having that sort of place where you can set your roots, you close your door, you understand that if anything breaks or something is not working, there is no landlord to call, there is no estate agent to get involved. I think it does two really fundamental things. One is that it settles your mind in a profound way to be able to really appreciate your surroundings as truly your own home. You can live in a house, but it may not necessarily be a home. And it's that transition that really took place for me from constantly renting, constantly moving from one precarious location to the next, to really having a home that I could call my own and to really invest in it. But the second part of it as well is you start investing in your local community. You start getting involved in neighborhood activities, you start getting involved in your local wall garden, you start getting involved in the country park that's nearby, you start getting to know your neighbors. There is a sense of security that comes with having that secure, long-term, safe environment that then allows you to invest in everything around it. And I think that for me was probably the most critical kind of step that took place. What do you like the most about your new house? I love the garden. I spend a lot of time in the garden. That's brilliant because you know when people were asked in the 1940s what they most wanted from their homes, they said, oh, I want a garden. Absolutely. It's hugely important just to be able to have that open space, to be able to walk around and get out of the house in your and still be in your safe kind of private space is, is, is critical. I asked Tashi how he tried to reassure people who feel more housing is never going to be in their interests. There is a huge amount to be said for more transparency from the developers, more transparency to get local people involved earlier, more transparency to try and explain your proposals better and sooner. I think it would help that local communities are engaged at the earliest possible opportunity so that they feel like they're having a say in what's happening. But also, I think a lot of local authorities misunderstand how local communities are engaging in something. So, for example, if a local community is concerned about the pressures on the NHS and the pressures on the GPs, for example, it's incumbent on the local authority to explain that that's not something that a developer who's trying to build houses can do anything about directly. What that developer can do is contribute a certain amount of money called the Section 106 money, which is an obligation money that pays for the services directly into the coffers of the local authority. And then it's up to the local authority to go and find 
the local GPs that are required to build the local clinics that are required. But what tends to happen is because none of that is properly explained through the processes, local people will just look at this so-called greedy developer and they'll say, our hospitals are full, our GPs are full, our schools are full, our roads are blocked, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What they don't realize is that actually there's been a huge amount of capacity assessment and then where there is more capacity required, the developers ask to contribute towards that and they pay a significant amount of money, sometimes in the millions, depending on the development, towards it. In the next episode, I'll be looking at how the 50s brought a new class consciousness in Britain, where if you were male and passed the 11 plus, the world could feel like your oyster. I'll find out how going to university became the norm despite the government's best efforts, and why, despite everything, we're still enthralled to the glamour of the British toff. Eden does make for a whole lot of pretensions, but more important than that, a whole lot of connections. So... Boris Johnson, as a result of Eton, has a whole lot of connection with people who are infinitely richer and infinitely grander than he is. I'm Ros Taylor, and that was Jam Tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Jam Tomorrow was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was me, Jay Bailey. Music was by Dubstar with artwork by James Parrott. Additional voiceover work was by Imogen Robertson. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. The home intelligence reports featured in this podcast are now held in the National Archives and are available on the MOI digital website. Jam Tomorrow is a Podmasters production.